0: Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. It gives me great pleasure now to welcome Professor Bruce Preston, who joined the University of Melbourne in 2015. Prior to this, he held positions at Monash University, the Richard Snape Chair, and Columbia University. He's currently a Senior Economic Research Advisor to the Reserve Bank of Australia and consultant to the Federal Department of Treasury. He was an Australian Research Council Future Fellow 2014-18. to He earned his PhD at uh, Princeton University and is an Associate Editor at the European Economic Review. His research primarily concerns monetary and fiscal policy. He's published in the leading international journals, including the American Economic Review, the Journal uh, of Economic Literature, the Journal of Monetary Economics and, and several others. And uh, we've got Bruce Preston on uh, online on Viewpoints today to have a look at the COVID-19 pandemic from uh, the angle of cost-benefits of all the things that are going on. Uh, firstly, um, welcome to Viewpoints, uh, Professor Bruce Preston. Uh,
1: thank you, Henry. Thank you very much for the invitation to talk
0: to you. And congratulations on uh, uh, a very uh, wide-ranging uh, and and eminent career, uh, uh, focusing in the area of economics, Bruce.
1: Ah, oh, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. One of the nice things about economics is you get to think about many things, and uh, yeah, it's been a uh, privilege to be able to do so.
0: Mm. Now, um, where did your interest in economics begin, and why? Uh, it's a very specialised yet highly important field. <laughs> I, I'm not
1: sure I have a great answer to that. Uh, one answer might be that my dad was an economist, and the fruit didn't fall. All that far from the tree. Uh, he worked as <laughs> both an academic and a public servant, and he worked tirelessly for the public good, and really with a, you know, a powerful but pragmatic intellect. And so, for me as a child, that was so, certainly something to aspire to. I think later on, when I started work as an economist after graduating, yes, uh, I had the pleasure and the fortune of having two fantastic bosses who were. David Gruen and Guy DeBelle. So, David Gruen, obviously, is Australia's head statistician now, and Guy and DeBelle is the deputy governor of the RBA. And they were a formidable pair. They were kind of intellectually intimidating, but they made economics lively and fun and relevant. And what was clear for my short time working with them was that economics was central to understanding the world around us and certainly central to public life and public policy discussion and so, from my perspective, as as kind of a young kid, they were the real deal, and I, I wanted to learn more.
0: Mm and you've certainly done that. Now, from the point of view of uh, the uh, uh, interest in coronavirus on viewpoints, you are one of 265 Australian economists, Bruce, who signed an open letter to our PM in April arguing that a trade-off between the public health and economic aspects of the the coronavirus pandemic is a false distinction. Why? So...
1: Um, we were worried about the way in which the discussion, the public discussion about the pandemic response was being framed, and it was being very much framed as you know, a choice between the economy and versus a choice in public health. And our view was that this is not the right way to think about the problem, that public health and a strong economy weren't necessarily at odds with each other. And so our thinking was based on the idea that to get the, you know, it was necessary to get the pandemic under control comprehensively for us to have the foundation for strong recovery. Basically, the idea that a healthy society meant we could have a healthy economy. And that wasn't to say that they're not costs, right? We acknowledge that firms have closed, that many people have lost jobs, and and these are serious economic issues. But our view was that this was an argument for government support of workers and firms that suffer a significant economic dislocation, not necessarily a reason for not locking down. So the lockdown was an you know, approach to public policy that permitted learning about the virus from international experience, but also building much-needed capacity within the public health system, our capacity to kind of test, contact trace and quarantine, And without this, we might have ended up with both a public health crisis and an economic crisis. And I think if we look abroad at various international experience, the examples are just all too clear. And so, you know, the idea that if we didn't shut down the economy, there would be no costs is just completely false. As people, you know, as the pandemic progressed, we would have seen uh, fatality fatality rates rise. and economic activity would have declined in any event. Right? People would stop going to restaurants. They'd stop going to bars. They'd stop going to football games. And so, in that situation, uh, for which there's kind of a, a reasonable amount of evidence for, we would have had an economic shutdown. You know, possibly comparable in size, uh, without having built the ability uh, to protect society from the pandemic and so in that sense we would have had the economic cost with still significant loss of life and it's in that sense that we thought the distinction was false
0: mm. now in a in a co-authored piece with uh... Professor Richard Holden and Dr Jen Schaefer, a piece which appeared in the Conversation the Guardian recently, you you undertook an examination of the cost benefits of the shutdown and to the layperson, we hear many ways of doing that and we get so much uh, conflicting uh, opinion about it. And you started with what's called the value of a statistical life as uh, the basis for doing it, firstly, for the layperson. Uh, what is the value of a statistical life and uh, why is that the bedrock of your examination?
1: Well, one of the difficulties of doing cost-benefit analyses in areas of public health is the benefits often are tasked in terms of health improvements or even the number of lives that we save. So we might think about implementing certain types of safety regulations that relate to road safety right so we introduce breath testing and ask well what are the costs of doing that well it's the cost of policing and regulating uh the implementation of breath testing of course the benefits are how many lives do we save from vehicle or motor related deaths and that requires us to put the cost and benefits on comparable terms right so how do we value a life uh, saved and that's where the number, the value of a statistical life comes into play it's basically a valuation of how we think about an abstract notion of a life saved. How is it computed? Um, there are a number of ways to do it but one of the dominant, you know, one of the predominant ways of doing this is basically to ask the answer the following question. What is it that people would pay to reduce the risk of fatality by some amount, right? The one way we could answer that question is simply to ask people, so I could come to you, Henry, and say, what would you be willing to pay? (laughs) Um, As economists, we tend to, what would you be willing to pay? And I don't know what that answer would be. As economists, we kind of worry about people's understanding of how that question is framed, how to interpret small changes in probability. So in practice, economists look at, say, labour market experience and wage data that infer the riskiness of different types of jobs to infer what people's preferences over different mortality risks, and so they use those data then to back out a number that represents what kind of a fictional person, right, might be willing to pay to avoid, to reduce the risk of mortality by some amount, and so this is a very complicated idea and and there's not any single number that can do justice to it. The evidence that we have suggests that age is a very important component, how much people are willing to pay. Very early in life you're prepared to take on a lot of risk without being compensated by high wages. In middle life you're much richer, there's much more at stake uh, and so people tend to be less willing to be subject to those types of risks. And then that kind of tails off a little bit over time. And so, in practice, the measures we have is that the value of statistical life kind of changes over time, at least due to that narrow economic interpretation of what it is. Of course, the government recommends, at least in the public documents that I've had access to, the use of just a single number. And that puts that number at 4.9 million. And so they recommend using that value to do calculations of the kind that we have done.
0: So that's the the figure that you started with in looking at uh, making a cost-benefit of the shutdown.
1: Exactly. And so when thinking about uh, this particular application as the tool of a cost-benefit analysis, we wanted to understand, you know, in dollar, putting a monetary value mm. on life, which is kind of a very cold-hearted, in a way, clinical approach to, to thinking about this question. What is the value of lives saved by preventing mass death from a virulent pandemic? And so we chose to use the number of 4.9 million. I think I don't know the state of mind of the government or the basis of their recommendations. I could speculate and imagine that publicly there's an important ethical discussion to assign different values to different people, And so in the piece that you have read and we're we're discussing, we chose to just use the single number as per their recommendation.
0: Excellent. Now, we need to take a short break, Bruce. When we come back, we'll have a look at, uh, by using that figure, which the government recommends, um, what your analysis uh, found. And I'm sure we're all very interested in that. Can you hold the line? Yes. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossek, and we're in the middle of a discussion with Professor Bruce Preston from the University of Melbourne, uh, and uh, his uh, focus is, uh, his brief is economics, and we're talking about uh, some work and papers that um, Bruce and colleagues have written in relation to the cost-benefit of the shutdown in the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome back, uh, Bruce Preston. Thank you. Bruce, before the break, uh, we got you to put uh, a monetary value on uh, statistical life and as the basis for working out whether the shutdown is cost-effective versus and for how long it goes, and uh, there's a lot of talk about that. Moving on with that figure, what did you find?
1: Well, to I, I give some background to this discussion, uh, I think it's important that we kind of come back and talk a little bit about what is the appropriate role of this type of cost-benefit analysis and whether we should do them at all. Um, The reason we did it was partly to respond uh, to some of the discussion that was being had that seemed to suggest that the economic costs were incredibly significant. And if we were to do a cost-benefit analysis, one would obviously conclude that we shouldn't have locked down the economy. And so we were interested in, in providing such an analysis, partly to understand the discussion ourselves. Partly it had a second, more pedagogical aim, which was to try and convey the framework and the intellectual apparatus to a broad, to the broader community put some numbers down but really lay out conceptually how to think about it and so that would enable or foster a public discussion that would allow people to say well I disagree with this assumption I have different values I have different ethical values say about the value of a statistical life if I plug in this number what do I get and so there was this element of trying to uh, communicate just how one could think about this type of exercise in this particular setting And so the conclusion was that the benefit of shutting down the economy in terms of lives saved, far outweighed the economic cost. And so there were two parts to that, uh, to that analysis. The kind of benefit side is looking at, to the extent that our public health response has been successful, how many lives do we save? And so this requires a number of assumptions. Uh, about the virus itself and how much it would propagate through society if we hadn't taken steps to protect uh, the public health of the community at large. And so we took the lockdown skeptics' view seriously, who have been, you know, there was a set of people in the commentary that were arguing we should just let the the, vamp- the virus run rampant through society. We could achieve herd immunity and that uh, this would then enable us to get on and minimize the economic cost to society. And so when you look at that extreme, admittedly extreme assumption, herd immunity for this particular virus was thought to mean that about the peak, the the peak infection rate would be about 60% of the population. Now, that doesn't mean only 60% of people get infected. It says once 60% of people are infected, the reproduction rate of the virus tends to decline. But over the course of the virus, some 90% of people may get infected. So this was a particular assumption. The Doherty Institute looked at uh, more optimistic uh, assumptions relative to that, and we can come back to that if you like. Um, But in general, the extent of exposure to the virus will depend a lot both on uh, public policy responses, but also private individuals, how do they behaviour change? But we wanted to take a very stark assumption that says well, we embrace the pandemic, we accept that people will die, what are the numbers that we might be talking about? And so the second assumption we had to make was one about fatality rates. I think at the time that we considered the shutdown, we were looking, say, at Italian data where it looked like fatality rates were alarmingly high. We were talking about numbers, say, 10%. We took the number of one percent uh, as kind of a benchmark. currently the fatality rate is probably about one point four percent, but I, I think we'll learn once we understand the true exposure of individuals. You know, so once we, because a lot of people are asymptomatic, we don't know and we haven't tested those asymptomatic people. Probably more people have been exposed than we think, and so the fatality rate will likely. Uh, be scaled down once we understand more. But we thought 1% was kind of a reasonable assumption. So taken together, that would suggest that 225,000 people could potentially die from an unmitigated herd immunity strategy and valuing those lives at $4.9 million gave us about 11, uh, $1.1 trillion or 11, you know, $1,100 billion dollars in terms of benefits. And to give you a sense of a scale, that's probably 50 to 50% of one year of national income to one year of gross domestic product. Uh, so that's the benefit side. Um, what are the costs? Well, these are kind of uh, many <laughs> there, there are many aspects to this. Of course, the first sort of cost you is, is reasonably think would be what are the economic costs? We're obviously seeing many times closed. People are unemployed, and uh, our national authorities, the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Treasury, are forecasting a fairly significant recession. And, and so, there at a first pass would be what you think the recession might be. And so, if you look at that, you might think the recession is going to be fairly significant. It might be 10% of GDP, which is large by historical standards, but that would be about 180 billion. But that's not the end of the argument, because one has to be a bit more careful in thinking about costs. Remember, we've had a pandemic and the pandemic itself has economic implications. On top of that, we've introduced a lockdown to protect public health. What we want to understand is what is the additional economic effects of the lockdown over and above the pandemic? Right. So we have to separate out what are the costs from the pandemic versus what are the additional costs from trying to mitigate uh, the public health consequences, and so uh, we, in this particular piece, didn't do that very formally. You could do it very formally, and there are a number of number number of studies emerging now that will allow us to think of, allow us to think about that very precisely. What we did was kind of have considered the following thought experiment: What has the experience been in kind of other countries that are similar to Australia? Right, they're small open economies but have taken different strategies uh, in terms of the public health response. And so Sweden is a very interesting example in that context. Uh, They have taken a much more liberal view, uh, one that kind of emphasises individual responsibility in terms of their own behaviour in managing their interactions with other people in society, whereas Australia has taken on a more government-led approach that mandated restrictions on certain types of activities But what's interesting when we compare, so this is kind of our lockdown versus no lockdown example, Mm. right? When you look at the projected economic costs going forward, we can similarly look at what the Central Bank of Sweden say about what it anticipates its own economic conditions to look like. They look comparable to Australia, if not worse, right? So that tells us that it's the pandemic, right, that is leading to a significant reduction in economic activity rather than the lockdown itself, OK? And so we looked at that and, and that kind of suggests that, I mean, we informally then said, well, let's suppose that 50% of the economic costs that are being anticipated, the $180 billion, the 10% of GDP that I mentioned earlier, let's say 50% of that cost is due to the lockdown, and that would give us $90 billion as just a ballpark number. I think there's going to be a lot of study on this, but it, it's, uh, it's my sense is that we're going to learn that, you know, in countries where there weren't mandated lockdowns, private behaviour quickly stopped engaging in normal economic activities, and this itself was going to be immensely costly. So our first pass was well, we're comparing 1.1 trillion against 90 billion. That suggests that there are significant benefits from the lockdown.
0: That's a good point. We need to take another break, Bruce. Can you continue to hold the line? Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. We're with Professor Bruce Preston from the University of Melbourne in the Economics uh, Department. Welcome back, Bruce.
1: Thank you. Bruce, there are a couple
0: of other questions that I'm sure um, people are interested in that that surround the issue of the cost-benefit. And it's uh, clear from your approach that uh, in the cold calculus of cost-benefit analysis, as you say, the shutdown wins. So where to from here, Bruce? Well, there are many parts of that
1: discussion. I do want to say, just for the people who are listening to this, that... uh, it's not obvious that one would recommend this type of analysis as the basis for national decision-making. We regularly make these types of decisions that have consequences about life and death, but the idea that we do that in certain circumstances, I think, confuses the nature of the problem. So to give you an example, I, I think we might think of a battlefield medic having to make renting decisions about medical triage, about who lives and dies, or a doctor who has to assign a respirator to one of two patients, I think it's a mistake to think or propose that the government bring about circumstances under which these types of decisions should be made or must be made. And so at the end of the day, cost-benefit analysis has to meet public approval. And while it is a useful economic tool, I think its application in this particular uh, circumstance would probably be wrong. I think it's just simply implausible that our national cabinet, with very transparent public process, would expressly desire decide to have 50,000, 150,000, or 200,000 people to die based on such advice. It'd just be simply unconscionable. Um, so, I kind of think people ought to be aware that, you know, at least in my view, and and my co-author Richard Holden and Dr. Jennifer Beaufort, that there are just fundamental limitations on how we could use uh, these types of tools. And so where we go from now, well, I think it's an active debate uh, about not only whether we've made a mistake uh, in locking down the economy, many people are now pointing to the fact that only 100 people have died. Surely it was an overreaction to take these steps. I think this just represents a fundamental misunderstanding of the achievements of Australian public policy. The fact that 100 people have died reflects the decision to lock down, It reflects good policy. And, you know, the, some media commentators' obsession with being Sweden or some other country is just a bit perplexing. I'm not sure why we would want more deaths at the same economic cost. And I think aside from that, there'll be a lot of discussions about just how we manage uh, economic recovery from this event. It's It's truly devastating for many individuals, and we have to continue to debate and make advice about what sensible policy is to support those individuals and deal with the ramifications of what's probably going to be a significant recession.
0: Yes. From an econ- economist's point of view, um, Bruce, um, I mean, we haven't been in a, a situation like this before. Um, how challenging has it been from your perspective to, um, to A, well, not analyse it, but to once you've got the tools and you've made the, the mathematical statistical calculations, then to sit down there and, as you alluded to a moment ago, um, come up with potential recommendations because governments have to do things and they turn to people like you for advice uh, and taking on board those ethical issues that come into play? Well, I, I think it's
1: difficult and um, I have to say that I'm... Um i'm not making actually making some of these decisions of course but you know i have interacted with some uh some government officials about aspects of the discussion i think it as an economist it's been a very different experience i think historically when we've had recessions uh it's because of the various developments it could have been because you know We've had economic excess, and that excess has been reined in, and we've had a period of weaker demand, and we've understood well about how to respond uh, to those types of economic developments. I think it's been less easy than you might think to come to grips with what are the economic issues of the decision to shut down the economy to protect the public health. I mean, that step requires deliberately a dramatic reduction in economic activity, Uh, to protect people from a pandemic and so thinking about that is fundamentally different and I think that's been challenging both in terms of economists understanding of it understanding the scale of the problem because it's happened very very quickly relative to past recessions they normally play out along a much longer time horizon and I think they're both Issues in terms of economists' understanding of this, but also communicating what those issues are to those who are making decisions. So it's certainly being a challenging time. As for myself, I, I hope to just keep applying the tools, you know, the basic tools of the trade to, to keep making the best possible advice. I, I think that we can make uh, uh, to yeah. ensure that we we, you know, we resume economic activity in a kind of sustainable and prosperous way.
0: Now, now, one of the areas that that impacts on, and there's a lot of debate about this, and it, it comes down to philosophical approaches by government, and this government's had to do a little bit of a flip here on perhaps some of their approach, the concept of support being a cost, and uh, and when governments pour a lot of money and create more debt, I mean, the, the general public out there are often fed a diet of um, the federal budget deficits and surpluses, and, of course... Uh, some of the conversation at the moment is around there's a huge cost through the government putting so much money into all the different uh, infrastructure and welfare benefits. Uh, It's a bit more complex than that, isn't it?
1: It certainly is. I mean, I I think uh, one thing that we should say or acknowledge in Australia is that we've gone into these crises in one of the, mo- the strongest fiscal positions in the world. So our net debt and our gross debt as a fraction of national income are very small, like 20 and 30% respectively. This is relative to countries like the United States that have gross debt to income ratios of 100%, Japan in the neighborhood of 200%. We just have much better capacity to use fiscal policy to achieve desirable ends. The policies that have been implemented, sure, they they raise public debt, but I think one should think about that in the following way. It may add ten to fifteen percent in in debt as a fraction of income, but this is over the lifetimes of taxpayers, a fairly small amount to pay for insurance uh, against this type of event, and that's exactly the way that you think about it. It's probably three to four hundred dollars a year per taxpayer. Over the the next thirty years, uh, that's the price tag that you would assign to the government current government programs, and that's small in some sense, a small relative to car insurance, it's small relative to home insurance. So I think while they're not insignificant numbers, I think we need to put them in perspective. As to thinking about costs, I, I think you're pushing me to talk a little bit about something that we wrote in this cost benefit analysis that from that the, two, that the JobKeeper program doesn't represent cost to society, uh, it, it is true in the following sense. From a budgeting perspective and government accountability, obviously these support programs like JobKeeper and JobSeeker are costed in the sense of having a dollar amount attached to them. And so those government programs run about $214 billion at the moment. But economists don't view the headline dollar amount as the true economic cost. And the way to think about that, Henry, is imagine the government comes to me and takes a dollar from me and gives it to you, and our behavior doesn't change in any way. You continue to be a radio host, you continue to be a, uh, a principal of, a, of uh, a school, I continue to work as an academic, we don't change our behavior in any way. In what sense, Has anything changed? National income's the same, right? Our own individual behavior's the same. And so it's in that sense that transfers, when we take money from one part of society and give it to another, don't, you know, the headline mounts, don't tell us what the economic costs are. Where the costs arise is when our behavior changes in response to how those transfers are implemented, and that's usually by using... uh, taxation like income taxes taxes on savings and so on and those taxes will make us respond and change our behavior so if for example to transfer money from me to you henry the government decides to raise taxes to to affect that transfer that lowers the return to me going to work and i might reduce the number of hours that i work and so it's those that reduction in hours that is in fact the true cost to society. That's what reduces mm-hmm. national income. So this is a discussion that focuses, you know, on kind of what the overall economic costs are, and doesn't say anything about the benefits of whether we can do them or not. Um, but it's just that warning that we shouldn't necessarily think the headline dollar amount represents the true economic cost.
0: Mm, good point. We've run out of time, Bruce. It's been such a pleasure and so informative um, chatting with you. And for for so many of us out there, people rely on, you know, the mainstream media and we don't always get uh, such in-depth analysis. And for that, I thank you so much.
1: Uh, thank you. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: My pleasure. That was Professor Bruce Preston, who's a professor of economics at the University of Melbourne. Listeners, we'll take a short break. Don't go away.